Well, the biggest blockbuster film of the summer for kids is likely to be this film right here, Minions. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time divulging the, uh, the plot line for this or giving away the, uh, the, you know, the happy ending. But I do want to draw your attention to a storyline that aligns very nicely with the storyline in the Bible with a few notable exceptions. You have three characters here who are in the search of trying to find the greatest villain of all time to serve. When the film begins, it begins, in fact, it'll begin this weekend. You can go take your kids to see it. I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying if you go, here's something you could talk about. You could talk about how this movie aligns with the Bible story of three Hebrew children in the Old Testament, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, when I was a kid, we used to say Shadrach, Meshach, and a billy goat. Uh, that's the way that used to go because some of those biblical names are a little hard to remember. I want to take you to that story in your Bible today. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to go there. It'll be in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, you can go there on your app, your, your phone, your iPad, or right there in the old leather-bound version. If you didn't bring any of that with you or you're not prepared when we get to the scriptures, they'll be up on the side screens. Now, in the movie Minions, the whole goal is to find an evil villain to serve. Now, it's kind of a comic way of looking at some bad stuff, and in a comedic way, it kind of moves the mo movie along towards some Pretty good stuff, actually, and a couple things you can talk about. There's some violence and stuff in it, so if you're really young kids, you may want to be cautious with that. But in the Bible, far from being a fairy tale, we're given the story, the very real-life story, of three Hebrew children who don't go on a quest to serve a very bad guy, but they find themselves serving a very bad guy. In fact, the worst of the worst. When, when the angels in heaven sit around and they talk about, like, when was a bad time in human history, I'm certain if they were to have a conversation, somebody would say something like, uh, you remember Nazi Germany, that was a really bad time. Or perhaps they would say, you know, maybe you remember Pol Pot and, and the regime there that, and how bad that got. But the quintessential point of all time when evaluating evilness would have been the time when Babylon was in charge. Babylon was evil. And in the Bible, when you want to describe an evil time, you refer to Babylon. Now, in the Old Testament, when the events were happening, this is before Jesus, um, they were kind of written about in real time or shortly thereafter. And in the New Testament, when they want to talk about things getting really bad, they refer back to Babylon. This is the ugliest time, the worst of all villains, the hardest time for the people of God. In the Old Testament, they were called Jewish people or, or, or um, um, you know, Hebrews, if you will. And in the New Testament, they become the followers of Jesus. We use that language again today, the Christians. But for the people of God, the hardest time in their life ever was serving under the regime of the Babylonian kings. So somewhere about uh, 600 B.C., 600 years before Jesus, there was a battle between two major empires— the battle between Egypt, which maybe you've heard about a little bit, just to the south and to the west of this little nation of Israel. And then there was Babylon, a little bit uh, to the north and to the east. And uh, between Egypt and Babylon, there was a lot of desert. So you don't fight battles with thousands of people in a desert. What you do is you find roadways where there's food, and water and an ability to take care of your armies, transport troops, transport uh, weaponry. So what they did is they would fight in and around an area we call the Fertile Crescent. The most direct path was through the desert, Egypt and Babylon, or if you will, Babylon and Egypt. But you don't go through the desert, so they would travel this Fertile Crescent, which passed them right near the Mediterranean 
sea right through a little country that we called Israel. And if it weren't for the fact that there was a lot of desert on one side and a lot of water on the other, then we might not know a lot about the history of this little country called Israel. But because of its strategic location, we're given both in the Bible and in a lot of historical documents all kinds of information about this little area. It becomes politically important. Now, we know it's spiritually important, but it becomes politically important as well. And so when Egypt goes to war with Babylon, or rather Babylon revolts against Egypt, the battleground becomes right around that little nation state of Israel, who had historically some allegiance to Egypt. At least they operated in their shadow and under their protection a bit. And so when Israel becomes the battleground between Babylon and Egypt, what happens is the ruling empire, the becoming ruling empire of Babylon, doesn't look all that favorably upon Israel. And their king, Nebuchadnezzar, is a wicked, wicked man, very difficult guy to work for and to live under, and he decides that he's going to literally wipe Jerusalem off the face of the earth. And so every stone gets turned over. All the major buildings get tumbled. The king's palace, the houses of all the wealthy people, all the people of influence, and most importantly, the temple is demolished. The year is about 587, 586 B.C., and the battle has been won. A few skirmishers, and each time Babylon is coming out on top with their ruthless leader, Nebuchadnezzar. And Israel, the little nation state, isn't a player in the battle. They're just stuck in the battlefield. And Nebuchadnezzar decides to enact what the Babylonians were very good at. They had the idea that rather than take a group of people captive, what they would do is they would assimilate them into their culture. And in an attempt to assimilate them in the culture, what they did is they killed off all of the prime fighting men and they would take the women and the children into their domain into their geography into their household into their lifestyle and they would integrate them in they would intermarry with them they would interbreed with them they would take the best and the brightest of the up-and-coming young men and women and they would integrate them into various positions of authority in the community and instead of literally enslaving people they would assimilate them fully and in this way babylon and other nation states around there uh, unlike egypt who kept its culture very pure, and if you weren't Egyptian, you couldn't be a part of it. Unlike Egypt, these other cultures were assimilating all these people groups. And in an attempt to do that, we find our story in the Bible now. Mostly about four young men who are a group of men who were not killed off. They were seen as bright, articulate, with great promise and potential. And the idea was that they would serve Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar very, very well. Now, as you might imagine, they didn't particularly choose this, but they didn't really have a choice. They were going to have to learn the Chaldean language. This is pre-Google. This is pre, uh, you know, electronic um, translators. They're going to have to learn the Chaldean language. They're going to have to learn the religion and the culture of Babylon. They're going to have to study astrology and the occult. These things are incredibly offensive to them. But their only choice is to survive or learn it. And in their learning, they thrived. They understood. They grasped 
the concepts. And what becomes interesting as you read the story in Daniel chapter 1 through 6, we're going to focus on 3, as you read Daniel 1 through 6, is while they are surrounded by Babylon, the culture of Babylon is all around them, while they're even learning and interacting with the culture of Babylon, here's where it becomes very interesting. Babylon doesn't enter them. They are submerged in Babylonian culture, which is the antithesis of everything they believe, everything they hold dear, all of their values, a constant battle of cultures. And while they are learning to thrive, what you discover as you read their stories is is that there is a limit to how much the culture from the outside penetrates the inside. So for the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and their friend Daniel, who the book is titled after, they live in Babylon, but they're not from Babylon. They're not, Babylon is not in them, even though they are in Babylon. They're in the middle of the greatest culture war of the biblical times, and somehow they do incredibly well. When we look at the story today, one of the things we're going to be looking at is not just their story and what we can learn from it in an immediate application, but the broader picture in which this is set. This is the kind of thing that they don't tell in Sunday school when they tell these stories. The broader picture is, is that evil is rampant. Life is hard for the people of God. Things are happening that they don't choose or like. They're caught up in a in a river of movement going in a different direction than what they would choose to go. All of their homeland stuff that they hold dear and near, all the familiar is gone. Things are rapidly changing around them. And God gives us a gift of their experience to speak into our lives today. Let me me tell you just how bad it was for these guys. One of the reasons that they were saved, as opposed to killed off, is because they were seen to have a lot of promise. But they were also viewed with a certain amount of suspicion. So they were put in schools to learn all the culture, astrology, the occult, all that stuff, the the language. And then they were also given to serve the king and the king's court directly. But because, as you might imagine, they're articulate and... and, uh, well-learned and lots of promise, probably witty as well. If you're a king with the big harem, you don't want a bunch of young guys like that hanging around your ladies. So they did something that to Jewish people was an incredible offense because if you were Jewish, one of the the highlights of your understanding of who you were, one of the, the key central tenets is, is that you are people of promise. And in your offspring, there will be ultimately a savior born to the world. Every Jewish woman would pray, God, let this child of mine be the Savior of the world. And one day when we get to the New Testament, Mary becomes that woman. This is is part of the culture. Children are a heritage. They're a blessing from God because through children we will bless the world. The whole world, God said to Abraham, will be blessed because of you and your offspring. And the promise then is not just for you, the Bible says, but for generation after generation. And so these Babylonians, in direct assault against this deep-seated value, they took Daniel and his three friends and they castrated them, made them eunuchs. Again, I didn't learn this in Sunday school. They didn't tell that story when they told us the three Hebrew children. And it was horribly offensive then. And can I be candid with you? It doesn't sound that pleasant today either. Just, you know, me standing here in this place. 
And so all of the values to the core of who these young men were, were assaulted. Everywhere they went, they were reminded, we're not in, in Israel anymore. We're not in Israel anymore. The times have changed. And so God gives us in this Old Testament passage a picture of what it looks like to live when times are dark. When we're watching world, the world around us change. When the people of God are struggling. I, I, I struggle as a pastor to preach a message like this just a little bit because when I talk about the people of God struggling here in America, it's very easy to go to our challenges. Our personal challenges, our corporate challenges, the challenges of a country. But, but, but the scale of what we typically go to as modern Americans versus what has happened historically to the people of God are completely out of phase. Don't make a, a foolish assumption here that, that our challenges are the kinds of challenges specifically that are felt emotionally by Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. When you look around the world today, not in America, and you look at how Christians are struggling, the people of God are struggling in dark times, it's radically different outside of Western intellectual tradition, outside of Europe and, and, and America today, than it is in the rest of the world. At the end of our service, we're going to share with you some stories about how our money has made a difference in, in India and your generosity has made a dramatic change. And a couple of those pictures, you're going to see some guys that have literally been beaten for their faith. All because they dared to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. And they wouldn't give in to the culture around them, the prevailing notions. And they were literally beaten to the point of death. People who suffered dramatically here in our current age. And you don't have to go back very far to see people who have stood up for Jesus struggle deeply because of that Belief that they had that there was something unique about Jesus. Our own country was begun in large part so that people could have the freedom to proclaim that without worry. So when I talk about the challenges of, of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I want you to think in terms of the larger picture of the movement of God against the current of this world. And not just make a simple connection to the struggle that we have, although we will do a little bit of that. The struggles we have about embarrassment and inconvenience largely because we're Christians. Because we're Christians, there are things we choose not to do that the culture does, and on occasion we get made fun of. Yes, that's persecution, but that is not being beaten for your faith. Let's put it in context a little bit. We talk about being brave in America to stand up for Christ. That's, that's incredible. We need to do that. You're going to hear a story of bravery here in just a second. That is astounding. But the bravery that we're going to read about and the bravery that men and women of God have faced in generations past, even currently around the globe, we're really not on the same page, most of us, with them. And yet, here in this Bible story, we can find some hints, I believe, some truths for thriving in Babylon. For thriving when the prevailing culture and the current of our times is, it appears, completely antithetical to the movement of Jesus in this world. And we can point to major pockets in our own culture where the values of God seem to get no appropriate attention at all. 
And for some of us, we, we, we think we remember a time. I'm not always sure that the time we remember is as good as we think it was because something about looking back makes the past kind of romanticized for us. But all right, let's just assume it was better. We, we come to today and we, we wonder what we do. What are we to do? I think we can look to the three Hebrew children a little bit. Now, I got I to tell you that the first six chapters of the book of Daniel are an incredible read, and one of the next steps I'm going to ask you to do this week is to read those six chapters. You can read them in under an hour. You're going to love it. This is going to be a part of the Bible when you're reading it. You're going like, to not want to put it down. It's captivating stories, especially now that you understand a little bit of the history. But when, when you come to these chapters and, and you read them, what, what you're going to discover is not simple, what I would like to call maybe Sunday school answers to life. You're, you're going to read the story of Daniel and the lions and how Daniel would not stop practicing his faith. And for that, he literally is put into a room full of lions. And on this day, though, those lions are on a vegan diet. And, and, and they don't touch him. So in Sunday school, I kind of learned, I don't know that it was said, but I kind of learned this truth, that if I would just follow God and practice my faith, even if I were to find myself in a den of lions, they're not going to eat me. And, and the truth is, that's not the point of the story at all. Because as far as I know, there's only been one example where a follower of Jesus or a follower of God was thrown into a den of lions that they didn't eat him. There might be one or two, Daniel being the primary one, the only one I know of, but it's documented that other Christians were thrown to lions and they were torn to bits. And so if the point of the story is, is if you follow God just right and you figure out the mechanisms to fire him, uh, to follow him, that you can be thrown to a den of lions and it won't harm you, then a lot of Christians are going to have a little frustration at God when they get to heaven. I don't think that's the point of the story at all. And when we read the story of, of the three Hebrew children, that they practiced their faith and they refused to bow to a false idol. They simply refused to literally bend their knee, bend over and bow to a false idol. And because of that, they're thrown into a fiery furnace, literally flames. And in Sunday school, I somehow learned, internalized that if I would just do the right thing, then God will always protect me from harm. And while that did happen in this story, there are Christians throughout the generations who have literally burned for their faith. So there has to be something deeper, more permanent going on. Let's look at Daniel chapter 3. We find ourselves in the story here at verse 13. And at this point, Nebuchadnezzar had, has issued an edict that at the sounding of the flute and the lyre and the horns and the drums, whatever time of day that rings out, everybody's to stop what they're doing and bow down and worship his image that has been set up in the city square. It's literally an idol. The, the king becomes a god. By the way, this isn't all that unusual in human history. In Rome, maybe you're a little bit more familiar with that, there was emperor worship. The the power of the emperor was so absolute that in effect he was a god to people. And so they just baptized that and made it real. Especially after they died, you would give honor. Around the globe today, there's ancestor worship that hearkens to this kind of stuff. And, and, and on a broader theological perspective, there are all kinds of idols that pull our attention away from the one, the worship of the one true God. 
we rarely, I don't know maybe where you are perhaps, but most of the places around America, we don't have idols that are set up. Now you're going to see some pictures in India where there are legitimate idols set up. And Christians are operating in the shadow of those idols. In America, most of our idols are less visible. And we operate in the shadow of other values beyond the worship of the one true God. But for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they literally were instructed to bow down. And so when the horns and the flute and the lyre and the drums played, they refused. And they're called to court to stand before Nebuchadnezzar, who knows them. They've already been identified as special. They've already received the royal treatment. They are already excelling. They already know the astrology. They, they, knew, they learned it, by the way. That might be interesting. They knew the occult. They, they learned it. They studied it. But somehow in the learning and the studying, it didn't internalize. They learned the language, but they didn't pick up the values. I think this speaks to Christians today. This idea that really what our job is to do is to just hold ourselves up and be secret, create a Christian enclave so that the world doesn't touch us, doesn't square with what the followers in the Bible did. They somehow lived in the middle of it, but they were somehow insulated. They weren't isolated, they were insulated. So they're called to give an account for not bowing down to the order of, uh, in, in, in honor of the order of the king to the image of the king. So in Daniel chapter 3, verse 13, these words in the Bible, here's what it says. Furious with rage, rage Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and a billy goat. So these three were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, it is true, or is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you did not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Do you hear the ego of this king? What God can save you? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, Try to get the tone here. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. They're not saying, uh, we're not going to answer you. They're saying, look, we're not going to take a defense. We're not going to appeal to logic here. We're not going to appeal to your emotions. Here's their thinking. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And at that point, we all go, yes, he is. Woohoo! And he will, by the way, guaranteed. At least that's what we'd like to think. But then they say, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. There's a resoluteness. And there is an appropriate embracing of the reality in front of them. There is likely to be a cost. Their theology speaks loudly, though they're surrounded by a culture of divergence. He's able. He's able. This is not a question about God's character nor God's ability. Our present circumstances, at least for them, did not make them wonder about God's character or ability. That was the fixed point. 
It's interesting. There was something about that being so fixed that allowed them to experience a world of change without it completely changing them. They were resolute about the character and the ability of God, and that allowed them to experience a world of change without being changed. They could learn the occult, even though they didn't value the occult. They could learn about it. They could learn the language. Daniel, when Daniel goes to Babylon, they change his name. Daniel means one who fears God. The L on Daniel's name, L, is the Hebrew short for God. They change his name to Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar means Baal's servant, or Baal, if you will, but pronounced technically Baal. Baal's servant. They change his name. His identity is shifted from one of honor to one of shame, according to his culture. All that's happening around them, and yet they are resolute. They have confidence in the character and the ability of God. They didn't have confidence. This would be the challenge point for us for you to explore. They didn't have confidence so much in whether or not the ability and character of God would mean that they would have an easy life. That wasn't where their confidence was. Their confidence wasn't because God's character and ability is such that I'm removed from every difficulty and challenge. Did you hear the words, the very own words? He's able, but even if not, we won't bow down to your idol that you have set up. Verse 24. Then what happens is is King Nebuchadnezzar throws them into a fiery furnace. He heats it up seven times hotter. It's so hot that the men who bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the gates of the flame are succumbed by the flames. They faint and they die. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walk in. And this is when the miracle kicks in. And the miracles eclipse the meaning for many of us. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement when he looks in on the fire and he asks his advisor, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, this gets very interesting here. I see four men walking around in the fire, not three. They're unbound. The only thing that burned were the the ropes that were holding them. They're unharmed. And the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. In the plural here, the language allows both. If you read the old King James, it literally in the singular says, looks like the son of God. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God. Notice how his story changes. Come out. Come here. And they walk out unharmed. The three walk out unharmed. Let's make a few points. The important lesson in this story is not that if we trust God enough and do the right thing, he'll get us out of every fiery jam. I can guarantee you that if you do the right thing all the time, you're going to feel pressure. It's not always going to be pleasant. When you speak a truthful word, when a little lie would kind of help the moment. When you engage at work with integrity and honor in all environments, when it would be easy to fudge here and there. When you have conversations that need to be had, rather than put them off and just say the pleasant thing. When you speak the truth in love, rather than just let love cover everything and you only speak what's pleasant. When you stand up for your values in high school and you're ridiculed, 
or in your 20s and you're ridiculed, or 30s and 40s. That's how we mostly experience it around here, those kinds of things. And around the globe, if I were preaching this message, I would say, or when people tried to beat you for preaching the gospel, or they threatened to take away your children, or that they divest you of all of your wealth, or they take all of your assets, or they literally make you kneel on a beach and chop off your head. The important lesson here is not that if we trust God enough and do the right thing, he'll get us out of every fire jam. The important lesson is that God, and here it is, followers of Jesus in this room, God is pleased with our obedience even when we expect the worst. This becomes a matter of obedience, not comfort. Living in Babylon required a certain obedience that was built upon the confidence, that was built upon their confidence in the character and ability of God. If God is who he says he is, he can be trusted. And that then demands my willing obedience to him. It emboldens my obedience to him. It allows me to handle whatever might come my way, and it probably is going to come your way at some point if you walk in obedience. I think when you read Daniel 1 through 6, those chapters, three things come to the top of the list. I'm just going to call these when you face the furnace. I have three ideas that you see repeatedly in Daniel and his three friends. Please read Daniel 1 through 6. You'll enjoy these passages. I think you'll see these, these trends. And I think they speak to us today. I think you'll see, first of all, you'll see a real hope. Now let's talk about hope for a minute. When we use the word hope today, what we typically mean is something like this. I hope you have a good day. I hope I get the raise. I hope I find out that news and it's good it's an emotional desire, a future emotion. It's a desire for some future emotion or some future event. That's not really what the Bible's talking about here. It's similar. Words have a range of meaning, you know this. So it's similar. It's not that it's not that. It's just more than that. When the Bible talks about hope, it's primarily talking about an optimism. Now, not a blind optimism, but just an optimism. That in light of our current condition... No matter how dark it may be at the time, I'm hopeful, I have optimism that God's agenda is going to be forwarded. That God, the sovereign Lord of the universe, will move his agenda forward. And that's good enough for me. No matter where I'm going right now, God has an agenda. And if I'm obedient, I can move and help and be a part of, I can please God in my obedience and his agenda moves forward. It's an optimism based not on our emotions in the moment, but on how we bring God a certain emotion, an emotion of pleasure. No matter where I am, I can do something that pleases God. So, no matter how bright the day, or how dark the day, no matter what's lighting up Facebook today, or what will light it up tomorrow, I, me, right here, me, I can please God. I have hope in that. I can't guarantee that that guy over there is going to please God or that person in power over here is going to please God. My wife is going to please God or my kids. But I can please God. 
And this hope that I can bring God pleasure through my obedience is an optimism that energizes and charges. And it always has, by the way. The people of God have always energized and charged themselves and the people around them by their stark obedience to the will and ways of God. No matter how bright the day or how dark the day. There was a hope that literally springs eternal. It's as if they've already read the Bible, the last section primarily, and they've discovered the whole point of the book. People often say to me, Ben, would you do a whole sermon series on the book of Revelation? Now, we've done a little bit of that. Everybody wants to know about the end of the world. I, I get two major requests. And I figure if I want to do church growth, we'll do these, right? We'll do these one day. Well, the end of the world, kind of end times, and then like sex. That's like everybody wants to know about those things in the Bible, like all the sex stuff and, and the end times. So I, I really, I want to accelerate our growth. I'm going to do a message series this fall called Sex in Heaven. I think I'm going to do that one. That's a joke. I'm, I'm totally kidding. Um, I, if, if those are the two most interesting things, we'll just blend them together. Now, now here's the thing. We'll do, we'll do some more of that over the next year or so. But, but I want to give you the whole point of the book of Revelation. When you read all this scary stuff and all this horrible stuff that's likely to come, you can have an emotion of fear. You, you can be afraid. Or you can have hope that God's will and purpose built on his character and ability is going to be advanced. Because the whole book of Revelation has one key point. God wins. God wins. It's going to get dark. It's going to be hard. You're going to feel some pressure. You are, you're not exempt. Your obedience doesn't exempt you from pressure. It simply gives you a way through the pressure. Your hope isn't built on your pleasure and your experience. It's built upon the ability you have at any point you find yourself to honor and please your heavenly Father. Because God wins. He, he always does. You may lose. I may lose. But if we stand with Him... Ultimately, on what matters, our hope is in what ultimately matters. If you stand with God, even if you lose in this life, you win. This is what gave the three Hebrew children great confidence in front of the fiery furnace as their handlers are dropping like flies. They knew that God was in the fire with them. That no matter what fire was coming in their life, they would not be alone. They had hope. They had humility. Their idea wasn't, God, sick them. Get them. Get them, God. Oh, I can't wait. Their idea was not, poor little Jesus needs me to step up and rally an army of moral warriors to get this thing done. No, they did their part as citizens, and that's important. They did their parts as members of families, that's important. As employees, that's important. They honored every environment in which they were. They had integrity through and through. But their hope was to win people over, not wipe them out. That, that's the humility in action. I don't want to win. I want to win you over. There was a certain openness and respect in dialogue. Did you notice? Oh, your majesty. Now, if they're getting ready to be thrown into the fiery furnace, if it were me, I'm just being honest. If I know I'm going to the flames, I'm going to go, I never like working for you anyway. You stink. 
I mean, I'm going out in a blaze of glory. But they didn't. There was a humility and an openness. Your majesty, we're not going to waste your time. Do what you need to do, but we're not, we're not going to bow. They wanted to win over, and in fact, that's what happens. At the end of the story, the most arrogant king in all the scriptures declares that there is a most high God greater than he. They had hope. They had humility that led to their serving. They were immersed in the culture, but the culture wasn't in them. They learned all about it. They weren't afraid because they knew a truth greater than any truth that was being presented. There was a confidence that allowed them to walk in the darkest of nights as if they had the brightest flashlight in front of them, even when they didn't. And it didn't breed fearful courage. You know what I mean by that? We're afraid, so we're going to stiffen our spines and we're going to face it. It led to humility that gave way to an incredible bravery. We're here to serve you. That's why Jesus reminds his followers, he didn't come to this world to serve, or to be served, but to serve. And his followers in like fashion would serve. And then taking on the form of a servant, he gave up the royalness of heaven, traded his regal robes for swaddling clothes, gave up those very clothes and hung naked on a cross. And in humility, he won people over. Everyone know? Did it work all the time? No. He still went to the cross. But he honored his heavenly father and he had an impact on people. That's the third thing I would say about thriving in darkness or when you're facing the fiery furnace. For your faith, I don't mean just the trouble you're in. That's important. We do other lessons on that. I do other lessons on God with you in the middle of your storm. That's, that's good. That's important. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you actively walk your faith and you're feeling pressure for being a follower of Jesus. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about because you haven't done it. You give in to the slightest pressure. They had hope. They had humility. They had wisdom. Incredible wisdom. They made a distinction between what we don't like the occult, our, our um, blasphemous names, this, this horrible language, the clothes, the food, things we don't like. They made a difference between what we don't like and things that God forbids. And that's an interesting discussion for Christians to have. What do I not like? What makes me uncomfortable? And what does God expressly forbid? Getting clarity on those things helps Christians navigate culture wars. There are certain words some of you use, I don't like. You know? It's okay. God doesn't necessarily expressly forbid them. So what do I do with that? Do I make them my battle cry? For me, no. Do I think they're a matter of wisdom you should think about them? Absolutely. Absolutely. Some of you entertain yourselves in ways that as a pastor I look at on Facebook and I go, oh, Lord Jesus. Click, just next page, you know. Uh. Now, do I make that my battle cry? No. If we're in a relationship, maybe we talk about them. There are things I don't like. There are other things that God expressly forbids. And Christians knowing the difference gives us wisdom to have fights that matter, not fights that don't matter. Some of you, 
have been a part of Christian families that have experienced splintering and difficulty and pain because there were fights about things that didn't really matter. And what was lost were the things, the deep things of God that did. And in the name of God, we splintered families. I thought that somehow we were honoring and our ignorance of the scripture, that's why I'm always trying to get you in the Bible, our ignorance of the scripture caused us to fight things that were low priorities for God. And I know everything's a big priority for God, I get it. But I think when you read the scripture, it's pretty clear what's really a big deal to him. Not always, there's still some room for debate, and we, we love those questions. But the priorities become pretty clear. What this means is if you're married today, God wants your marriage to be the thing you're most concerned about. Becoming a better husband or a better wife is your primary relationship, not your pleasure, enjoyment, your friends, what your friends say about your spouse, not how you're enjoying things, but what you personally are doing as a woman of God. And are you living a life of integrity? And the truth of the matter is some of you should stop everything else and become a woman of integrity or a man of integrity towards your spouse. And all this other stuff is second. And if you're a parent, God really cares about the life you're modeling in front of your kids. The way you're conducting yourself in your home and out of your home. And the legacy that you're leading them. And it is deeply spiritual. And the wisdom of this world runs counter to the wisdom of God. And you will be asked, you are being asked by God to stand up and do it right. To please your heavenly father by obeying him as a husband, as a wife, as a parent. I can make the list longer as an employee. If you're a student in the room, God wants you to be a good student. Quit being lazy and do your homework. That's what God wants for you. That is his will for you. You don't have to debate that stuff. And this other stuff matters. Of course it matters. But it's amazing how that stuff will consume our time. And God's over here saying, but I put you here. Honor, obey me here. Obey me here where you are. And I'll take care of the others. You live your life because it becomes a light. And interestingly enough, the darker it gets, the more powerful the tiniest of lights shines. The darker it gets, the more powerful is the tiniest of lights. That's the way our obedience before God is meant to be lived out. So as I thought about this message and the three Hebrew children, as I considered our little Minions movie where they're trying to find the most evil person to serve, I found myself praying for our church. So here are three things I'm praying for Four Corners as we live in a world that doesn't always value God. Here we go. Number one. May we come to find, if, if you say this as a prayer, may we come to find that it's not how much we believe in you, Lord, but rather how much we obey you that will have the greatest impact on our relationship with you. Wherever you're walking in disobedience today, it's having a dramatic impact on your relationship with God and the rest of your life, no matter how big or small. Wherever there's hidden sin, wherever there's a lack of stepping into the thing that he's called you to, it's at that point that your spiritual life is sick and anemic. And God wants you to do it differently. He wants you to take pleasure in bringing him pleasure. 
May we come to find that it's not how much we simply believe. It's not what I know. It's not what I believe. But rather, it's my obedience. He desires obedience more than sacrifice. Here's the second thing I find myself praying. May we be astonished, Lord, at the things you do when we are obedient in our faith. I'm praying that this summer there will be testimonies of obedience. I stepped forward here. I took a step here. I moved in this direction here. And I saw God's hand at work. That's what I'm praying for. God, astonish us when we walk in obedience, built on a confidence in your character and an ability. And here's the other thing, because I know we're coming from various places in our, in our faith journey, so... May our faith, Lord, act and obey even when it's riddled with doubt and I could put in fear, insecurity, our experience from our parents, other churches, our frustration with where we are in life. May we have a faith that acts and obeys and just simply follows God for us. And then from that perspective, when we are right with the Lord, it gives us an incredible platform to influence those around us. And we become lights in a dark place. When you face the fiery furnace, I want to encourage you. Don't give up hope. Do your best to walk with humility. And pray for the wisdom of God. And then obey the truth you know. And see what God doesn't do with that. Who knows? You might come through the fire unburned. Or you might go through the fire burn and find yourself standing before an awesome God who never left you, never forsake you. And in the end, he wins. And if you stand with him, you always win too. Why don't you do this? Why don't you grab out your connect card and let's take a few steps together as a congregation. I'm very excited about this message series. I hope you'll make every week that you can and that you'll look at how the modern movies that we watch speak to deeper issues. Three people trying to find a villain to follow. And the Bible gives us a powerful picture of a similar story. Over the weeks, you're going to hear various people talk about stories that the culture is telling, and we're going to be looking for God's truth in the middle of them. But right now, I want to give you a chance to check next step A right there on your connect card, and it says, today, I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. If you haven't yet begun a relationship with him, I want to invite you to do that. He comes to you as a servant. He's given his life for you. The Bible says that you engage a relationship with him very simply. You acknowledge what the Bible says about you, and trust me, your pride won't like this. You simply say, God, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I can't do it on my own, so I'm going to trust what you did in your son who gave his life on a cross and was resurrected from the tomb. And because of that, I can have a relationship with God. My sins are washed away, and I become a new creature in Christ. I'd ask you to take that pen and check next step A. Put the card in the offering bucket when it comes by at the end of our service. And we'll communicate with you this week about it. I'm going to pray in a moment. And you can talk to God, do business with him. And secure that. You can use my words, use your own. And you can get things right with God right here before you leave. Or next step B. Today I'm choosing to be baptized. Now nah, listen, I don't want to beat people up. You're here. You get the stars for being here. I don't want to beat you up. But the truth is, is some of you are just a little fearful to be baptized. You should probably talk to a church leader about that. And let's, let's encourage you to follow God in an act of obedience. If you've committed your life to him and you haven't been baptized, it would be normal and right for you to be baptized. So 
check the box, initiate a conversation by doing that. That's all you're doing. And we'll try to get you lined up. We'll answer your questions. We don't do a lot of hard pressure sailing or selling around here. That's not going to happen to you. But we'll talk about what does it mean to follow God in obedience through baptism. Now, here's next step C. I want you in the Word of God, church. I want you in the Word of God. You get inundated with the world all the time. You got to take in the Word of God. That is for you, not for me. It doesn't help me. It does make it easier to be a pastor. But it doesn't help me. But it'll help you. So who will read Daniel's chapter 1 through 6? I would tell it, read it to your kids, but there's some dark stuff in there, so just be careful, all right? It's like worse than the movie if you go see the Minions, all right? So Daniel 1 through 6, um, read that and just see how God speaks when things were dark and how he uses people. Here's next step D. If you'll do this, check the box. I'll pray this prayer. God, make me aware of your conviction and help me to bow to you and no other gods but you. You and no other gods, God. Nothing else takes your place. Nothing eclipses. Nothing casts a shadow over my walk with God. Nothing. Pray this prayer. Let the Holy Spirit wash over you this week. And I, here's next step D, or E rather. Moment of honesty. You don't need to give me the details. But next step E says, I've been disobedient. I know God is calling me to obey. Today I turn and I face him more fully. It's by checking that box. Set your heart. God, forgive me. Apply your grace. And help me to walk from this place in a different way. Let's pray about these things right now. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word that speaks into our lives no matter where we find ourselves. God, thank you that you didn't leave us alone to figure this thing out. But you have spoken through the pages of scripture. You speak through the movement of your Holy Spirit. You speak through the preached word of God. Thank you, Lord, for speaking into our lives. God, we want to be children of light in a world of darkness. So I pray, God, you would help us to hold on to the hope we have in you. You would cause us to walk with humility and wisdom. And you would make our lights shine in this dark world. That we would serve, love, give. Father, I want to pray for those people right now that are doing business with you. Those that are declaring, Jesus, save me. Wash away my sin. Become the Lord of my life. For those followers of Jesus like myself who have some repentance and confession to do. No God but you, Lord. No God but you. Nothing casts a shadow over you in our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would raise up this church in North Cincinnati. That people would come in this place and they would experience from you a love and an acceptance. And it would radically change their lives. I pray it in the strong and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.